Well, this morning we begin on a, on a journey together, a journey that's going to take us um, months into the future through uh, two of my favorite books of the Bible. I probably say that about every book of the Bible because in some ways they're all my favorites, but um, the books of, of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Uh, for me, I read these books at a time in my life when God was awakening me to the faith. I grew up in the church, but it wasn't until my late teens um, in the 80s that, that um, the Lord showed me that the book that I have here and the book that you have and the stories in it are really true. Um, it's one thing to know it, and it's another thing to believe it. And, um, and God used the stories of First Samuel and Second Samuel to really teach me about what faith looks like. And there's some of the most engaging and riveting stories in the Bible. Hollywood has made movies out of some of the things, David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba and so forth. They really are some of the most engaging stories you'll read in the Bible. Um, but they're, they're not just a string of engaging, riveting stories like an adventure. They're, they're actually stories woven together to reveal the heart of God to us, um, to reveal God's work of unfolding redemption and reclaiming us and, and the work that he's doing. Um, it's a book that teaches us what faith really looks like in the fray of life. And, um, and ultimately, I think it's a book that points us towards the king, that is, Jesus himself. And so I'm hoping and praying that as we go through these engaging stories and look at their truth, um, that God would feed your faith too and give you uh, strength through them. Uh, whenever I come to the Old Testament, and actually it's New Testament too, I ask four questions four primary main questions. One, what did the author intend to say when he wrote it? Two, what does it reveal to me about God? Three, how does it point me to Jesus? And four, how does it teach me to live by faith? And those are the questions that I come to this book with. And, and again, I pray that you'll know more about God and more about how to live out your faith as a result of this journey we're going to go on. Well, this morning is kind of a big picture thing. I just wanted to kind of give you a, a sense of the, both books as a whole. Originally, they were one composition, so you got to think of First and Second Samuel as one book and two volumes. They were meant to be understood, read, and um, thought about together as one. But what I want to do this morning is I want to look at um, the two kings that it introduces. There are three primary characters in, in the book of Samuel in two parts. The prophet Samuel, after which the book gets its name, and then two of Israel's first kings, King Saul and King David. Now, our focus is going to be on seeing the contrast this morning. Our focus is to see the contrast between King Saul and King David because I believe that they were meant to be compared and contrasted and there's a truth to be learned in the contrast. Scholars call this contrast a foil. Oftentimes, you'd have one life um, set alongside another life in order to teach a truth. And so I believe we're to understand Saul and David's life as a contrast to one another. And when you do... Um, a question emerges, a very profound but very wonderful question if it leads you to the proper answer. So I want to explore a question as we compare these two kings, the first two kings of, of Israel. But before we ask and answer the question, I want to just make two historical introductory remarks. And these are more for those of you who are newer to the faith. You don't really know that much about the Bible. The Old Testament seems like these hodgepodge of stories, and you're wondering how this fits in. So I want to make a chronological comment and also a comment about function. How do, how do these two books, one book and two volumes of First and Second Samuel, fit into the flow of the Bible? Uh, to give you kind of a frame of reference... 
the events that unfold in First and Second Samuel take place roughly between um, 1100 BC and 1000 BC. So a thousand years before Jesus, and over 3,000 years before us. Uh, to put that in kind of the biblical flow, here's a rather basic, like chronology. Again, this is for those of you who, who just really don't understand Bible history all that well. We want you to be educated and understand how it fits. It's hard to jump into a story if you don't know uh, the frame of reference. The really Bible history traces God's choosing a people for himself and his promising um, to those people that he would save them. Um, so it starts, of course, with Adam, and then um, it follows his line down to Noah, where another promise is made, and then um, follows down Noah's line to a man by the name of Abraham, who lived about 2000 BC. These are just approximations. Um, who is given one of the most wonderful promises um, that he would be a father of many nations, he would be blessed, and he would be given a land. And then it follows that promise to his sons, Isaac and then Jacob. And out of Jacob, he has 12 sons, believe it or not, and those 12 sons become um, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, 12 tribes of Israel end up down in Egypt to survive. Um, God sends Moses, also a Jewish man, to deliver them and bring them out of Egypt. You've seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. And, um, and they wander through the wilderness in a while, and then, and then they come into the, to the promised land, modern-day Palestine or Israel, and, um, and then there's a series of, of leaders, and here we come to 1000 B.C., the time of David. So hopefully this just at least gives you some kind of sense of chronology. The little circle there on the line is, is uh, where the events take place in history. So that's kind of comment number one, just to give you some, some bearings chronologically. The second one has to do with function. Um, every book in the Bible has a particular purpose or function, and I believe the purpose and function of, of 1 and 2 Samuel is to introduce us to the time of the kings. Up until this point, there is no king in Israel up until about 1100 B.C. So this book uh, records a very important development in the life of God's people, namely the installation of kingship and the introduction to monarchy, which finds its final culmination in the book of Revelation, where the son of David, Jesus, the lamb that was slain, sits on the throne of a new creation and rules the nations. So in that sense, it's a very important development. That's how these books function, is to introduce us to the idea of kingship and monarchy. So with those two introductory comments made, let me come back to um, the question that I believe emerges as you focus on the lives of its first two kings. King Saul is the first and King David is the second. If you read both books, one book and two volumes, um, in one sitting or two sittings, you get to the end of the book and you ask yourself a very, you've, at least I find that many people struggle with a question that arises. And the question goes something like this. I've been asked this and I've wrestled with the question myself. After you read through First and Second Samuel, you're struck by the fact that Saul, the first king, is rejected, while David, the second king, is accepted, despite both of their failings. And the question that emerges is why? Why did Saul get terminated as king, and why did David get accepted, despite the fact that both men failed? And I believe that question... Um, is intended by the way in which these two kings are contrasted. Why is it that one is rejected and the other accepted? 
Um, I'm seriously, you get to the end, you're like, wait a second, that's not fair. Saul got, got fired, and David didn't. I can't tell you how many people have asked me this question. Well, anyway, that's a question I believe that was strategically intended by the way in which these two kings are contrasted. So I recognize you don't feel it at this point, so let me just kind of draw a general picture of Saul, and then a general picture of David, and then see the difference. What is it that separates these two, that makes the difference between rejection and acceptance? So let's talk about Saul here for a moment, the very first king of Israel. He is described as really kind of the, uh, the poster child of what a king should look like. This is how he's introduced in the Bible. This is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Berkarath, the son of Aphael. I'm so glad we don't name our children these things anymore. A Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, what you may not know is that the Bible doesn't always, in fact, it doesn't very often describe people's looks. But it takes the time to describe this first king's presence. Um, He's described as a son of man with wealth. In other words, the idea is that Saul is is a wealthy young man. Wealthy and he is handsome. Not just handsome. The Bible takes the time to explain that There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. So of the top 100 most eligible, beautiful bachelors in Israel, Saul was at the top. He was kind of the Brad Pitt beautiful guy, the kind of guy that'd make headlines or be on the cover of GQ or Cosmo or Time or whatever other magazine you want to put in there. Um, he 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 was the kind of person that you'd say, wow, that's my president. That's my king. But it goes on to talk about his height as well. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Taller than anybody in Israel and the best looking. And the fact that he's Semitic, that means he's tall, dark, and handsome, and wealthy. (laughs) That's what the image is trying to create and introduce to us the fact that this is the the king that you you look at and say, yeah, that's my king. Sense of pride, like that's the king we want. Now, God, I should, I should back up and say that God gives king to the people of Israel because they look around at the other nations, and at this time, Israel doesn't have a king, and they look around, and they say, hey, everybody else has kings that fight their battles. The Philistines have kings, the Syrians have kings, the Amalekites have kings, the Egyptians have their pharaohs, which is just another way of saying kings. But Israel, up to this point, is just kind of a ragtag um, collection of tribes with no central figure. And so they come to the Lord saying, hey, we want a king like all the other nations around us to do our fighting, to, to fight our battles for us. And so God gives them Saul. And what a prize. You know, he's exactly what they wanted. He looks like the perfect king. So that's his presence. It's rather impressive. Height, good looking, and wealthy. He'd be make an amazing... Uh, no, I'm not going to go there. Uh, but about a performance, the way the story unfolds, you see that uh, Saul as king is a, is a fairly decent performer in terms of his military exploits as well as his administrative um, capacity. 
Um, in chapter 11, for example, the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. This is after he has first become king. He organizes the army, and he goes and delivers a Jewish city by the name of uh, Jabesh Gilead, who, who is being brutally sieged by an outside country. He comes in, and he wins the day, wins a victory. That's chapter 11. Chapter 13 and 14 records another victory that Saul had over the Philistines, um, largely through his son Jonathan, but he still claims the victory of it. And then you have a summary of his his performance or his successes in chapter 14, verses 47 and 48, which I'm going to go ahead and read for you. It says, When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, kings of Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. In other words, he, he, he got the job done. Uh, a lot of victories in his portfolio of, of uh his kingly duties. In verse 48, it says, And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. So this summary statement tells you that he did pretty well in terms of his performance as a king. So he's impressive in the way that he looks. He, he has a marginally impressive track record as a king. But we also know, in reading the pages of his life, we also know that he has some rather glaring flaws. He's notoriously insecure. He is fearful. Uh, he's often jealous and uh, vents his anger against people like, like David. He tries to kill David a number of times. So you have a guy who's impressive physically, has a fairly decent performance, but also has some glaring flaws. And one of the biggest pivotal flaws or turning points in, in Saul's reign as king uh, is found in chapter 15. And you've got to follow this part because this is really important for the point I want to make later. Chapter 15, King Saul is given very specific instructions. Uh, the Lord tells him through a prophet, he says, you need to go down and you need to wipe out the Amalekites. Now, you may not know what the Amalekites are, but they're just simply an ancient enemy of God's people. And God gives him specific instructions. Go and wipe them out. Leave nothing alive, not even animals. Wipe them out. It's clear. Well, Saul partially obeys the command of the Lord. He does go down. He does destroy the Amalekites, but he doesn't destroy everything. He keeps the best of the sheep, best of the cattle, best of the herds, and he keeps the king alive. Now, in the Bible, partial or incomplete obedience is considered disobedience. Did you hear that part? Partial obedience in the Bible is the same as disobedience. And so as a result of this incomplete obedience as king to the word of the Lord, the Lord comes to him, and this is what he says. 1 Samuel 15, verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, this is Samuel talking, he has also rejected you from being king. You're done. Finished. Pack your bags. Your dynasty will no longer be in effect. Your throne is not yours. So God, God fires him, to quote Donald Trump. You're fired. That's what he does. Now, again, an impressive king with a relatively okay track record of victories, yet has some flaws, and yet the Lord, after this incident, kicks him out, rejects him, terminates him. Now, at this point in the story, you might shrug your soldiers and say, oh, whatever. Maybe you'd be a little sympathetic. Like, you know, give the guy a break. Why did the Lord just kick him out, reject him uh, after he made some mistakes? 
Or maybe you'd be on the other side of the coin and say, yeah, I got what he deserved. If he can't follow the Lord's instructions, then, then he shouldn't have the throne. Well, keep that in mind, that kind of basic description of, of Saul, his presence, his performance, along with his flaws, and the fact that the Lord rejected him. Now let's back up and look at the other king, King David. Somewhere in Saul's reign, he meets this young little Jewish upstart who's the youngest of eight children and a sheep herder named David. And the Bible takes time to explain or describe David as well. Chapter 16, verse 12, he, David, was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Now, I don't know if being told that you have beautiful eyes as a man is um, a desirable thing, but apparently he had beautiful eyes and was handsome, so he did have some stuff going for him. But this isn't the same kind of description as King Saul got. I mean, the most attractive, most handsome man in all of Israel. In other words, by comparison, David wasn't in the top ten. There's no mention of his wealth, no mention of his height. So by comparison, David is unimpressive. And then on top of that, he's the youngest of eight, the tail end, and a sheep herder. And the idea being that David's beginnings are somewhat unimpressive. And yet David is God's choice. Saul, while he was chosen by God, was really, for all practical purposes, the people's choice. He would have been the one that got the votes, um, got the points in the media. David wouldn't have. But God's choice is this young Jewish boy, the youngest of eight, who is um, not like Saul. Then you go on to look at David's uh, performance, like we looked at Saul's. Um, David, too had his military victories. The most renowned um, throughout history, of course, is when he went out on the battlefield as a, as a boy with nothing more than a shepherd's sling, and he went and took on the champion, this nine-foot guy named Goliath, and he took him down and won the day. That earned him a hero's reputation. But then he continued to win battle after battle after battle as a warrior, even before he came, became king. You know, he saved cities like uh, Kela and so forth. And after he became king, he also had... Um, military victories. In fact, I can't remember a single military defeat in, in David's history. Um, the summary in chapters 8, 9, and 10 of David's exploits, militarily speaking, tell us that he subdued the Syrians, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines. In other words, everybody was under control by the end. So David had a good performance too. But then, also like Saul, David had some rather massive moral failings, just like Saul. In fact, so much so that, that David is uh, given several chapters that vividly and horrifically describe his sin. Uh, Saul's sins are, for the most part, summarized. David's expounded upon with great detail. And most of you know what those, those moral compromises and um, that kind of moral meltdown uh, was. But for those who may not be familiar with the story, bottom line is that David stole another man's wife. This is King David, a man after God's own heart. Stole another man's wife, committed adultery, lied, conspired to commit murder, and did. Now, think about that for a moment. 
conspired to commit murder, premeditated. He slept with another man's wife, both of which, according to the law of Moses, are punishable by death. So that's, that's what he did. And it's written in public writing. And if that wasn't bad enough, the consequences that unravel as a result of his sinful choices, his sinful, selfish choices, um, are nothing less than nationally tragic. As a result of his moral failure, a child dies, a daughter is raped, family is divided, and the nation of Israel is embroiled in civil war. And thousands die because of David's failure. You, you read both accounts of Saul and, and David, it seems by sheer space that's given to David's sins, along with the massive avalanche of catastrophe that is unleashed as a result of it, you get the sense that what David did in terms of actions and from all outward appearances is worse than what Saul did. But when the prophet comes to David after this massive meltdown, morally speaking, the prophet looks at David after uncovering his sin, and he tells him that the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Let's think about the comparison for a second. Saul makes a mistake, and the Lord says, you're rejected. You're done. David has a massive moral failure, and the prophet says, and the Lord through the prophet says, you're forgiven. You're forgiven, and you're not going to die. Saul is given words of condemnation, and David is given words of grace and forgiveness. Not only is he given words of grace and forgiveness, but he retains his kingship. In our day, we would impeach a person for this. <laughs> what David did here is monumentally of graver, graver moral catastrophe than what our former president did. And yet, this is a man after God's own heart. Not only does he retain his kingship by the grace of God, but God sustains his promise that David's throne will endure from his sons forever. So you, now maybe you feel a little bit of, of what it is. You, you read Saul's sin and realize he got, he got rejected, and you read David's sin, which is massive, and all of the catastrophe, and you're like, wait a second, this guy got rejected, this guy got accepted, he got grace, he, he maintained his kingship. What's up with that? This seems unfair. And I believe that that's part of the strategy of these two books, is to leave us scratching our head going, wait a second here, what, 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 what happened? How, like, how can God do that? Some of the best discoveries of life are found when someone sticks a plow into your mind and, and turns up the soil of what you thought were settled conclusions. And this story, First and Second Samuel, together, these two kings compared and contrasted, does just that. Leaves you feeling like that is unfair and unjust. From all outward appearances, David did more, worse things than Saul, and yet one was rejected, the other is accepted. How could that be? That tells us that God sees things differently than we see them. We judge the world 
and actions based on outward appearances. But one of the main themes of these books is that God looks beyond and through the appearances and the actions into the heart of a man. The prophet Samuel had to learn this lesson when the Lord said to him that the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, including actions and so forth, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord saw something in David's heart that he didn't see in Saul's heart, despite that they both had successes and both had their failures. He saw something in the heart of David that put him in a different category. And the question is, what was it? What is it that, that makes a difference between the one who's rejected and the one who's accepted? The one who's condemned versus the one who gets grace? And I believe the answer comes down to this. What God saw in the heart of David when he got through all of the failures and the performance successes was that he saw a heart of a man that truly trusted and treasured the Lord above all else. Trusted and treasured. Trusted and treasured. Leave the treasure for another time. I'll just say at this point, he trusted the Lord. And if you back up between these two men, kind of rewind a little bit, and you look at them again, you realize, wow, they do operate from the heart on two different principles. You'll find the word fear and afraid oftentimes connected with Saul. Whenever he's put in the pressure cooker, we find him frightened. And fear, oftentimes in the Bible, is the opposite of faith. Where there's lots of fear, there's, there's, there's a little faith. That's why Jesus said, oh, ye of little faith, when the men see the storm, his disciples see the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Faith and fear. But it would seem from the reading of the story that Saul operates on the principle of fear. That is not faith. I mean, at the opening public declaration that he is king, this is back in chapter 10 of, of 1 Samuel, um, it's kind of like the drum roll, and you're getting ready for the, the curtains to open and the king to be introduced, and the curtains open, and there's no one there. Because chapter 10 tells us that he was back in the baggage compartment hiding. This big, impressive, tall, good-looking guy was hiding, giving us the indication that he was fearful. Chapter 13, he's facing a massive army um, of Philistines, and it says that he was afraid. But he was supposed to wait a particular period of time and he couldn't wait. He grew impatient because he didn't trust the Lord. And he took matters into his own hands and tried to save the situation. He trusted more in himself than he did the Lord. Goliath on the battlefield. The tallest guy in all of Israel is the king. And one of the only people who had swords at the time. The one guy who should have been on the battlefield wasn't. Why? Because he was behind the lines afraid. He lived by fear, fear that produced jealousy, attempts at murder, and so forth. So he operated on the principle of fear, not faith. He didn't believe or trust in the Lord. David, on the other hand, is constantly looked at through the lens of this, this one believes. At almost every turn, he's asking the Lord, what do you want me to do? Do I go down? Do I come back? As if he trusts God's direction. 
uh, when he went on the battlefield with, with Goliath. He went out there by faith and trust that God's steadfast love, grace, and power would meet him there and bring down the enemy. Even the whole, he had to wait years and years from the time that he was anointed as king to when he became king. He refused to take matters into his own hands. He trusted in the Lord and allowed that trust to, to, to create a sense of patience, like the Lord will put me in the throne on in his time. But it was, a, it was a constant faith thing for him. Uh, when it came to, to, to vengeance and, and personal injustice, we, we read that David time and time again relinquished injustice to the Lord because he knew that he could trust God with vengeance and not take it in his own hands. So the, 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 the picture that emerges is that at every point, David trusts the Lord. He trusts the Lord. He trusts the Lord. He trusts his grace. Even in his failure, in his failure, when he's confronted, how is it that David responds? I'll tell you how he doesn't respond. He doesn't respond like Saul does. When Saul is confronted about his sin in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, it says that he justified himself and he was defensive. That's how he responded to the rebuke. David, he responds to the Lord with these single, this simple statement. He comes and and Nathan says, you're the man who committed these sins. And David, first words out of his mouth, I've sinned against the Lord. That's what he says. Chapter 12, verse 13 of Second Samuel. He just repents and acknowledges that I've done wrong. No defensiveness, no justification. And he casts himself. This is a true sign of faith, even in the most deplorable failure, moral failure. He throws himself on the mercy of God's grace. Psalm 51 is a a beautiful expression of David in the middle of his failure and how he responds to it. Have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your steadfast love, and blot out my transgressions. Even in his failure, he trusts the Lord. So the whole picture is that he trusts, he trusts, he trusts, he trusts. Even the biggest battles that both of these kings face is a huge difference. King Saul, the last day of his life, he's fighting the Philistines on the, on the side of Mount Gilboa. This is 1 Samuel chapter 31. And it's not going well. He knows he's about to die. And you know what he does? Instead of dropping to his knees in faith, he falls on his sword in an attempt to commit suicide because he's despairing of life. Instead of dropping to his knees, he drops on a sword. David faces the biggest battle of his life. At this point, it's the civil war. It's his own son Absalom, his rebellious son Absalom, coming at him with massive numbers. And how does David respond when he's put in the pressure cooker of this, this, this terrifying battle? Well, we read about it in Psalm chapter 3. He says, and it's, it's faith. He just trusts. He says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. He worships. That's what he does. So when it comes right down to it, what separates isn't their list of successes or how they look. God is not impressed by how tall you are, how beautiful you are, how powerful or wealthy you are. That's how we judge things or how the world judges things. 
God looks right into the heart, and he sees in this man a humble faith. A humble faith. And God gives grace to those who are humble, broken, and trust in him. At the end of the day, the reason that David was a man after God's own heart was not because he was perfect, but because he trusted in the Lord, period. That's what God honors. That's what he favors. That's what he pours out his grace on. The difference between the rejected and the accepted is simply one trusted and one did not. And that has been the clarion call of the Bible all the way from beginning to end. The just shall live not on the basis of their performance or their failures. The just shall live by what? By faith. That honors the Lord. So one of the big messages of these two books is, as we will explore as we go back and then do the stories, is, do you trust me? David trusted him in battle, trusted him with vengeance, trusted him with injustice, trusted him, Lord, with his sin, trusted him in life, and trusted him in death. So the simple call of these two books is, do you trust? Do you trust him with everything? But even beyond that message, I think this book also points us forward, or at least pointed David's people forward. I think one of the reasons that David is described with all of his warts and all of his failures is to tell the people of Israel and convince them that we need another kind of king. As good as he was, he wasn't enough. God makes a promise to David back in chapter 7, verse 16, where he says this, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The idea being that there is a king coming, the likes of which David is just a shadowy, dark figure of. A king who would be the son of David, born of a virgin, the kind of king who had the kind of love for his people that he'd be willing to take their place in judgment and bear their sin, the sin of David, the sin of Abraham, the sin of Isaac, the sin of Jacob, and all of us. The kind of king, unlike David, that would not buckle under the pressure of temptation, but would stand up to it. The kind of king that would not buckle under the injustices of people tormenting and torturing him. The kind of king that would not buckle under the weight of sin. The kind of king that would not buckle under the weight of the wrath of God. The kind of king who would take on the deepest enemies of the human uh, condition, and that is our sin and our death and our condemnation. That's the kind of king that David wasn't. And in that way, points us forward to the perfect king to come that God himself promised. And the Bible then calls us now to trust in our king, our perfect king, our righteous king, our just king, our powerful king, the one who reigns already at the right hand of God and promises to come back and recreate and resurrect. So the call of of this book from a New Testament Jesus perspective is Do you trust Christ, our perfect king? Do you trust that he's with you? 
Do you trust that he's just in everything that he does? Do you trust that he has your good in mind in all things? Do you trust him with your house? Do you trust him with your child? Do you trust him with your disease? Do you trust him with your future? Do you trust him with the unknowns? Do you trust him with your past? Do you trust him with the injustices that he will avenge his people? In every, in any situation, do you trust Christ the King? That's, that's, that's really the plea this morning. It's hard to trust sometimes. But God gives grace to those who humble themselves and say, yes, I trust you. And I'm going to trust you with these things in my life. My life, my death, everything. So as, as we come to communion this morning, I, I just want you to contemplate that question. What is it that the Lord's saying, you trust me with that? The just live by their trust in the Lord, that he's got everything covered, and we can trust him with it. So as you come and partake of the bread and the cup, which are symbols of his great sacrifice, the sacrifice of our king for us, no one more loving and no one more gracious and merciful than him, then answer the question for yourself and, and ask the Spirit to help you. Lord, do I trust you? And if I don't, help my unbelief. Help me to trust you. If you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome to come up when the music starts. Um, as I pray, if I could have those who are going to serve communion come forward, and um, then we'll worship together. And I just want to add one final thing, and that is if there's anybody here that has something against another brother or sister that's unresolved, or someone has something against you, and they're here, then move throughout the room and find that person and make sure everything's okay, because it's... It's um, contrary to come to the table representing forgiveness and grace while you're harboring non-forgiveness in your heart. So do that before you come and then come and, and experience once again the grace of God um, through these, these gifts of bread and cup. Father, I thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you that you call us ultimately to trust in you, to trust in your grace, trust in your future, trust in your sovereignty and wisdom, um, to trust that, that you will call us to life beyond death, to know and trust that you will recreate this world and, and make this home once again a, a beautiful and, and wonderful place. I pray for those who struggle to trust you with their future and their lives or their families. Give them the grace this morning to relinquish it and surrender it to you in trust and to know that you're good, sovereign, loving, and gracious. In Jesus' name.
bring me 